If you're walking across the campus of Missouri State or Mizzou, Arkansas, Southern California, it's not uncommon to hear a voice rising up over the hubbub on campus saying, you're all a bunch of sinners. You're all going to hell. Certain sins are called out. You're addicts, you're drunkards, you're adulterers. And I'm you know, cleaning this up a little bit because of the youngsters in the audience. And when you hear this voice shouting on campus, those things, you know, we're, we're being visited by a guy named Brother Jed Smock or, or some of his uh, uh, apostles. I won't go into all the ethics and, and all that sort of thing about what Jed's doing. He's been doing this for 40 years. He travels north to south uh, as the weather gets colder and then south to north as the weather gets warmer. He spends every day, at least eight hours a day on a campus, pointing fingers, naming sins. He doesn't know the people. He'll just point at somebody who he thinks is inappropriately dressed and, and say things about their sexuality. He, he will point at other people who are just walking by and, and accuse them of dreadful things relating to substance abuse or whatever. And I, I have met Brother Jed, I've chatted with Brother Jed, I'm on his mailing list. Uh, he, he sends out a newsletter and every now and then he'll say, praise God, another person converted to Christ at the University of Arizona or at Colorado State or someplace. But for somebody who spends eight hours a day evangelizing, it, it, it's, it's not a very high level of production. But there is a production going on. <laughs> and I'm going to be talking about judging today, so please forgive me if I sound like I'm being judgmental. This, this is a guy I know, this is a guy I've tried to, to chat with and so on. But the main product is an awful lot of people on campus just say that's what Christians are. <laughs> you know, That's what Christians are. People who stand up, point fingers, who, who condemn before they even know who you are. And on the other hand, another product of his efforts and I used to think he's crazy. I don't think he's crazy. I think he's very well-intentioned. I, I just think he is misguided in his efforts. He has made hundreds of thousands of students who do believe say, I'm never going to be like that. And because we don't want to be like that, often that means we're not going to say anything about sin. We're not going to say anything about other people's actions because we don't want to be Brother Jed. And, and even if we start to bring up with somebody we care about, perhaps uh, the deficiencies in, in their faith or deficiencies in the life they're living, not from the standpoint of saying, I don't like this, but from the standpoint of saying, there is more, there's something better than this. I think a lot of people stop talking because they don't want to be Brother Jed. They don't want to be Brother Jed. Today we're looking at the second chapter of Romans, the beginning of the second chapter of Romans. And I have long believed, everybody here who's here who's been a part of Campus House knows that uh, I say this a lot, but I'm pretty sure the only verse on, uh, of Scripture that most people on campus believe they know is the verse that says, don't judge man. Don't judge man. So that any time any question is raised about any action, any attitude, any language, any behavior, what you're sure to get is don't judge man. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I find it more ironic than ever. In, in the world in which we live, in, in which there's near universal condemnation of particular ideas and so on that is expressed 
through the media, it's expressed on social media, it's expressed everywhere. There, there are certain ideas that cannot be held, even in America where we're supposed to have freedom of speech, without you being called, you know, dreadful things, bigoted, hater, all that sort of thing. And yet, if you say, do you really think you should be lying to your parents that way? Don't judge, man. <laughs> In the history of Campus House, uh, the, at one point, we, we had a recurring character who, who would show up sometimes at our Bible studies when we were reading a text about sin. He would come running into the room wearing a cape saying, don't judge man. And he was, don't judge man. Okay, he was the superhero. Don't judge man, because that is so important. We can let all sorts of things slide, but don't judge man. Romans 2, beginning with verse 1. We read, you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you'll somehow escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Okay. Paul is saying, kind of, sort of, don't judge, man. I mean, he certainly says, don't pass judgment. But let's go back to Rome. Let's go back to the context. We've got to keep in mind that so much of Rome, uh, Romans makes more sense when we recognize that setup I gave you last week, where we talk about, uh, talked about the, the Jews in Rome, the people who'd migrated there, the people who'd become converts there because they saw in it a better lifestyle. But now that they're Gentiles coming into the church, now that there are these lousy pig eaters who want a fellowship alongside us, these people who don't even know the correct means of washing your hands and, or the correct uh, words for prayer, how can we possibly fellowship? How can we possibly worship? How can we possibly accept them? And Paul says, okay, you guys, back down here a little bit. Therefore, remember last week we talked about how we're all sinful? Remember, well, not last week, last uh, uh, paragraph in the letter. Re remember that I said we're all sinners on this bus? Who are you to pass judgment? Oh, man. Don't judge man. Don't judge man. On the other hand, the scripture says a whole lot about evaluating fruit. Uh, back last spring, I, I spoke at a, a retreat on the, the uh, last part of 2 Peter. And as I was reading it, one of the uh, encouragements there is to keep people from straying. And I thought about this in the context of judging. Okay, well, if you think somebody's straying, is that judgment? But then it occurred to me, okay, that's uh, Second Peter. How about First uh, John? If you look at the very last few verses of First John, it also says, if you see somebody committing a sin, it's not laid to death, bring them back. And then I thought, what about James chapter 5? James 5 says, if you see somebody sinning, bring them back. You know what? As a matter of fact, going all the way from there to the uh, book of Revelation, even things like Jude and Third John have admonitions to not let people wander off. We are indeed supposed to be doing some Evaluation. We're supposed to be doing some discernment. Don't judge man. Okay, okay, we gotta, we gotta come up with a difference here. 
Paul points out, Paul points out, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Okay, okay. There is a standard. It's called truth. And if we are standing alongside God, and we are saying, well, according to God, <laughs> this action, this idea, this lifestyle, this whatever, is not lined up with God's law. We're not judging. We, we are simply communicating the truth of the gospel. And I, I, I brought a really lame, uh, but hopefully effective uh, visual aid today. Um, some of us, even to this day, even if we're adults, when we see this, we sit a little harder, you know, down to protect the most vulnerable part of our body on which something like this was used. Okay, a yardstick can be used for that. But you know what, the major function of a yardstick, I'm pretty sure I have never seen on one to be used for paddling or perhaps also measuring. No, I've never seen that. The function is a tool of evaluation. You can see how long something is, you can see how straight something is. I, I like to build things, not necessarily very good at it, but uh, even yesterday I was, I was helping a grandson hang up a, a thing in his uh, room that required two uh, uh, screws, two hollow wall anchors in different places, and uh, so I put the first one in by measurement, and then I kind of eyeball the second one. But I was wise enough not to drive it in. I pulled the, the level up. Yeah, I was off by about three inches. Okay, uh, my eyeball is not as good as I would like to think it is. I needed a level. I needed a standard. Okay, God's word. God's word is our straight line, our straight edge, our level, our measure. Yeah, about a foot, <laughs> you know, that long, right? No, no, a foot is exactly that long. We need a standard of measurement. And when we stand alongside God in love and say, according to Scripture, that's not appropriate behavior. According to Scripture, here's how you ought to be interacting with those people. According to Scripture, here's what's really important there. When we do that in love, we're not judging. We're simply letting God use us as a communication tool of, of his standards. Now, when we turn it around and we use the Scripture or God's standards to beat up on people. When we say, I don't like that, I don't like what you're doing, and I think you need to stop, and I think the Bible backs that up too, don't judge, man. Don't judge, man. We've we got to make that distinction. And uh, <laughs> pretty much when our evaluation of others is based upon our personal ideas, there's no reason to trust that. You know, I made fun of the phrase last week, follow your heart, follow your heart. You know, let us keep in mind that the scripture says the human heart is deceptive above all things. And, and that is just as true in evaluating the errors of others as it is of evaluating the righteousness of ourselves. Our hearts are not the standard God's word is. Here's one of my favorite examples of this. Some of you have known me a long time when I first showed up at Campus House uh, a <clears throat> long time ago. I, uh, I was fresh out of four years of college. I, I still looked like a teenager. And, and so I grew facial hair initially to look a little older. Probably for the first three to four years at Campus House, I had people involved in Campus House who were older than me. And uh, 
I mean, I wanted to grow a beard too, you know, let's, let's be honest, but, but it made me look older and hardly anybody ever found out they were older than me. It was good. But in the early days of Campus House, our ministry had no money. Um, the entire budget of Campus House our first year was $11,000. They'd only raised, the, the board had only raised about 5,000 of that, and so I had to hit the ground running, fundraising to even stay in business for a year. So I went out to churches, I spoke every Sunday. Actually, the first Sunday I was in Springfield, I came to Glendale Christian Church, well, not here, there. And uh, I wrote letters to churches saying, hey, we are launching this thing. Actually, it had already been launched, but I'm here now. We're going to make it bigger and better at uh, uh, then Southwest Missouri State University. Could you help us? Could you sponsor us? And uh, in one church, I heard they read my letter in board meeting, and the uh, chairman of the elders said to the rest of the board, so what do you think? And one of the people on the board said, I hear he has a beard. <laughs> and that was the end of it. We still have never gotten any support from that church. Uh, many years later, I hear the people in Rome were saying, I hear he's a Gentile. Well, I can tell it, but what did he, I saw him eat some shrimp. You know, I, I saw that guy not pray in the morning. I saw that guy making pottery on the Sabbath. Paul says, don't judge me. We know that God's judgment is based on truth. So if, if God says it's okay, even if it makes me uncomfortable, it's okay. And this brings us into something, okay, a little more uh, heart-touching perhaps. Even though we live in a world where nobody wants to be uncomfortable, even for a moment. God asks us to do a whole lot of things that are uncomfortable for us in our natural states. God asks us to love people we would not naturally love. God uh, calls us to accept people we would not naturally accept. God calls us to invest our lives in people who we think are probably junk bonds, <laughs> you know, all in all. But we are called to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. Oh, man, sometimes. I mean, God's grace is sufficient for us, but we aren't sure it's sufficient for others. And, you know, all in all, we'd rather not find out. There was a Jewish professor on campus for several years who, who became a good friend of mine, and we'd go out and we'd eat, and we'd talk about a variety of things. And very interestingly, one of the biggest objections he had to Christianity was the notion of grace. He says, grace just gives people a, a free deal. It, it gives them a free pass for the dreadful things they've done. People should have to pay. I said, yeah, <laughs> that's the whole point. We all should have to pay, but Jesus takes our sins. He says, well, I just don't think that's fair. I just don't think that's fair. All right, let's go to the next passage here. Romans 2, 5 through 11. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're st storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, uh, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Whoa, that sounds like my Jewish professor friend. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. 
There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Let me make a slight theological uh, detour here. It is very interesting to me that this passage, or this particular verse, God does not show favoritism, is one of the main themes of the whole book of Romans. God can save whom God wants to save. But ironically, there are people who turn this around to try to make Romans into a book of exclusion. God, from the very beginning of time, chose everybody who's going to be chosen. Everybody else is out, which would make this not true. God does show favoritism from the very beginning. Even if it's just random, God said, you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out. That's not what the book of Romans is about. The book of Romans is saying God can include but there's, there's kind of a deal here. It takes both sides. There are uh, 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 dependent clauses here, if, then sorts of clauses. The Jews definitely had the advantage. They knew who God was. They knew what God wanted. They were somewhat naturally inclined to try to look for law, to try to look for standards. But God does not show favoritism. Yeah, the Jews got in the door first. But if God says Gentiles are okay, Gentiles are okay. But nobody, nobody, nobody just gets the get out of hell free card with nothing connected to it. God will give to all, it says here, depending on their actions. Ah, heresy alert, heresy alert. We are saved by grace, not by works, lest anyone can boast. Paul has written that, Ephesians chapter 2. I guess, actually, that wasn't written yet, but, you know, that, that makes Paul seem like a good guy, <laughs> you know? Hey, it's okay. God will throw his arm around you, say we're all sinners on this bus, and you're all good. When I was here, I don't know, a few months ago when we were doing that overview of the Bible, the Jules Miller film strip series, and I got something like, the judges through Jesus that's got to be probably one of the most comprehensive messages I've ever given. Um, <laughs> and I think I kept it under half an hour. Come on, you know, props there. But I, I mentioned this, this Greek word sozo, the word for salvation. Sozo's the, the, the uh, verb form. I, I like using it better than the noun form. But uh, what God calls us to is to be redeemed, to be saved. And that means to be put back together. In the beginning, God creates humans in his image. He gives us tasks to do. One basic rule, great-grandpa and great-grandma Adam and Eve blew that one. If they hadn't, we would have. And, and so we have lived lives of sin. But when Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost, he was not saying, I've come to make sure you have a luxurious eternal retirement beyond this world. He said, I've come to put you back together. I've come to re-enable the image of God to live in you. Well, what does the image of God look like? We, we just talked about this last week at Campus House. Uh, we're doing a study on attributes of Jesus. Talked about John 1, 1 through 18, where it says, Jesus reveals exactly what God looks like. Okay, so you want to you be saved? Look like Jesus. Now, now let's get the if-thens. It's, it's not so much, if you can look like Jesus, then you'll be okay when you die. But if you invite Jesus into your life, if you call him to be your Lord as well as your Redeemer, you're going to start looking different. Because God's going to start putting you back together. 
Let me put this in more familiar American terms. We all have times when our vehicle does not do what we want the vehicle to do. And uh, sometimes maybe it won't start at all, sometimes maybe it backfires, sometimes maybe the transmission or clutch goes out, but basically you got a hunk of junk, okay? Um, Joyce and I were driving to a wedding in Kansas City a few years ago, and at 70 miles an hour on set, Highway 7149, just south of uh, uh, Kansas City, it stopped running at 70 miles an hour. Uh, we managed to coast it downhill, managed to get it off the road, and nothing, nothing, nothing. And we left it at a repair shop in Kansas City for two or three days. I eventually went and got a, uh, I got a trailer down here, went up, got it, brought it back here. Um, okay, when I went to the shop to pick it up, if they had said, congratulations, Mr. Embry, your car has a brand new title, okay? Your, your, your title makes it look like this car has never been sold before. It's got a new life. You're the owner of a new car. And I say, yeah, 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 whatever it is, run. It's like, well, don't expect too much, you know. Uh, you know, we have redeemed it, you know, but, but don't expect all that much. I, I'm not going to think it's fixed, okay? And actually, to a certain extent, that's kind of what took place in Kansas City. They said, well, that's a very complex problem, and, and we are still looking for, you know, but it's going to be better. No, no, I brought it down here, went to my shop, they had it going in two days. That's salvation, okay? That is redemption. That is transformation. <clears throat> that's what God wants to do in us. He wants to turn us from people who are following our own hearts to people who are following his hearts, and according to this passage, the, the proofs in the pudding. Now, again, it's not like, eh, you know, you know, on a 100-point scale, you got a 61 that puts you right over. It, it's not about earning, but it's about response. It's about transformation. It's about letting God do in us what he wants. And again, we're talking to these Jews in Rome, and Paul's saying, you guys are saying these Gentiles aren't measuring up to the right GPA you know what? Your GPA isn't so hot either. It's about, the, it's about Jesus' work. But are you going to respond? Are you? God's patient, but his patience is about repentance. It's not about indulgence. God's not the there, there, kids. Kids will be kids. Let them do what they want. God's patience is, come on. Come on, let's try it again. You can do better than this. Verses 12 and 13 say, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. There's those words again, those who obey. Well, do you ever think there's kind of three potential statuses people can have here? You can be people who've never heard and so you don't do. Well, duh. Secondly, you can be people who hear, but don't do. Or you can be people who hear and do. According to what Paul's writing here, the people in the second category are exactly like the people in the first category. If you just hear it, but you don't put it into practice, Jews, people who have been Christian 40 years, leaders, if you aren't doing this stuff, it's just like you never heard. Oh, God, you want us to accept the Gentiles? We, we just can't stand that. And <laughs> I, I always see in Paul a little bit of a showman. 
uh, one of those guys that has the commercials on the radio. And, and I think Paul at this point might be saying, okay, has God got a special deal? He can save you Jews. He can even save Gentiles. But wait, there's more. Verses 14 through 16. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will yield men's, or judgment secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Oh yeah, God can save the Jews, God can save the Gentiles, God can save people who've never heard if he wants to. Whoa. Now what does this mean? This, this is a very interesting verse. And I will confess that I bring this up a lot when people on campus are saying, oh, we believe people need Jesus to be saved. What about those who've never heard? I often say, well, my standard answer is, God's God, I'm not. I don't know how that's going to work out. I have enough confidence in God that when the last day comes, I know I'm going to sit there and see how God works it out and go, that is so great, God. I had no idea how you'd work that out. Excellent. Thank you so much. But I always bring this up. I say, well, it's a text that says when those who don't have the law do the things of the law, it will become a law unto them. Now, please get me straight here. And, and I hope that's true. I hope there are all sorts of people saved who we haven't been able to make contact with. But I am not going to trust other people's salvation to the, well, could be. We, we need missions. We need evangelism. We, we need to get out there and tell people. But Paul's saying, this is God's ballgame here. And if God wants to save people who've never even heard on the basis of their inner moral compass, God can do that. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he's making the moral argument for the existence of God in mere Christianity, says if you look around the world, there's a surprising congruence of people's ideas about what's appropriate behavior and what's not. You know, people may differ on how many uh, wives a, a man may have. Most cultures say one. Some say four or five or whatever, but there's no culture that say, you know, feeling frisky, just grab somebody, it's fine. Um, th there are some amazing parallels throughout all cultures on what's appropriate. If God says, okay, you know, these guys are all right with me, who are we to say, well, God, that's not fair? This is about God. This is not about us. There's a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Uh, written by a guy named Don Richardson that tells all sorts of stories of tribal groups out here and there who when missionaries uh, eventually show up more or less say, well, it's about time. We've been expecting you. Uh, for whatever reason, in the last couple of years, I, I've been more fascinated than ever with missionary biographies. Um, and I've, I've read four or five missionary biographies. And, and it's interesting to me that the people who've gone to the farthest parts of the earth have so often found people who are prepared to hear the gospel. God is at work in a bigger realm than we imagine. All right, Dave, you've covered your verses, you're done, you can sit down, now you're through. No, 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 we, we've got a so what here. We've got several so what's. <clears throat> the, the first thing I want to remind you is that sometimes I believe Growing up even in church, we have the idea that kind of God sort of offers us a second-tier voyage on planet Earth. 
You know, it's not first class like those other people get where they get all the fun. Well, you know, we live downstairs, it's a little darker and don't have quite the amenities, but at least we get to go to heaven when we die. That's bogus. That is totally bogus. Jesus said, I've come uh, that they may have life and have it to the full. And if you talk to the people you know who are living flat out for the kingdom, and when I say talk to people you know, some of you are doing that, you're, you're not apologizing for it. You're, you're, you're not wishing you were doing something else because it's as good as it gets. Yeah, your car still breaks down and, you know, sometimes you have the snuffles. And, uh, yeah, the, the, there are things you can complain about if you choose to. But your life has meaning and purpose and, and vision and your relationships are good and you feel every day like you're doing things that matter. And th- there's not something cut rate about this. And if life is that good in Jesus, shouldn't we be telling other people? If we're going to tell other people, (laughs) how do we use the yardstick? Do we become known as that really, really religious person who you can't stand, nobody can stand because they're going to whoop up on you? You know, as soon as you get close to them, they're going to start telling you what's wrong. We are not called to judge. We're not called to point fingers. We're not called to name sins, especially for those we don't know. We're called to listen. Well, first we're called to love. We're called to listen. We're called to lead. But you can't lead somebody a place you're not going yourself. The message is to keep following Jesus and bring people along with you. We've got to use God's yardstick with love. We've got to think in terms of sozo, that this world is a broken place, full of broken people. And Jesus can heal, which is great news. And... The word evangelize means, it's, it's the verb form of the noun, good news. Evangel, to evangelize is a verb, literally means to good news people. So one of my objections to Brother Jed is I don't think he's good newsing people. I think he's bad newsing people. And, and I think it's okay for us to be reluctant to bad news people. I don't think we should be the people who are the bad news agents of the world running around saying, You're all going to hell. There is no hope. Good luck. You know? Our message is, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread is the best model for evangelism I think there is. Sozo leads to euangelizo, or evangelism. You've probably heard this story. Please forgive me for telling something that's become so common. One of the most famous atheists in America, of course, a guy named Penn Jillette. He's part of Penn and Teller, the magicians from uh, Las Vegas. Several years ago now, after a show, a guy came up to him, talked to him a lot about his magic, talked a lot about his illusions, expressed admiration for him. And uh, the guy said, I know you're not a believer, but I really wish you'd read this book. And he gave the guy a Bible. And Penn Jillette had the graciousness to thank him for that, that Bible. And the guy walked off, and after he left, a friend of uh, Gillette said, the nerve of that guy, giving you a Bible, doesn't he know you're an atheist? And Penn Gillette said something very, very profound. He said, you know, if this book is true, and there, there is eternal life, and there's eternal death, and that you need to know and do particular things to get in on that eternal life and the blessings that come with that, How bad would you have to hate somebody not to tell them about it? Whoa. 
Whoa, wise words about evangelism from an atheist. How much would you have to hate somebody to not want them in the kingdom? <laughs> to say you make me uncomfortable. To say there's no hope for you. To say, why even bother? We need to be full of truth to invite other people to walk along with us and, and to press on. God does not show favoritism. Why should we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that somebody took the risk and told us about you. Father, thank you so much that you don't invite us to life second rate, life third class, life budget version. Thank you that in you there is plenty. There is joy, there is mercy, there is grace, there's glory. Lord, please use us to help apply a yardstick, help apply a level to the issues of this world, but, but may we use that yardstick recognizing it still needs to be used on us as the measurement, not necessarily punishment. Lord, may we not be so full of ourselves that we think we are, we can eyeball everything and call the shots. Whether we're interacting with others directly, whether we're on social media. Father, may our goal not ever be to win an argument or to smack somebody down for what we think is wrong with them. But may we offer truth, may we offer grace, may we offer life. Father, please today even, put on our hearts those people with whom we have some interaction, who maybe we feel are just too far gone. Maybe we feel that they are unresponsive. Maybe we feel that we don't even want to be in the same church with them. Please, please enable us to love so that we can tell the truth, so that we can indeed be your agents of grace to them and everyone else we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>